Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Disney's new premium VOD offering and theatrical film, Raya and the Last Dragon. It is $30 to rent at home. I rented it at home. Anyone saw it in theaters. We're going to talk about it and tell you if it's worth the money. Also, we're going to take a look at LA Confidential. Yes, the 1997 LA noir flick is back due to a listener request. Shout out to Jamal Park on Twitter for requesting it. Jamal, we finally reviewed it. It only took me like eight weeks to get down to it, uh, but we're going to watch. Well, we watched it and now we're going to talk about it. We're also going to look at the Oscars. The nominations are out. They dropped early Monday morning. We've got hot takes. They're not quite like the Golden Globes, they're a little different. And before we get to all that, when you talk about the news, Naturally, because the Oscars are out, of course, there are also the <laughs> Razzies. Yes, the worst thing that ever happened in the movies are celebrating their 41st anniversary. And this year we are looking at 365 days, uh, Doolittle and Sia's music as the top Razzie <laughs> Award nominations. Obviously, this doesn't warrant a whole segment like the Oscars will in between our reviews today. But we got to talk about this because Doolittle was um, reportedly not very good. Andy, what do you think about this list? Um, well, a lot of these are always really funny. There's some tongue-in-cheek jokes uh, here. As we said, we've been saying that music is a, a really terrible movie, and we haven't even seen it, but just from everything we've read, it's apparently really uh, offensive to people with autism and uh, like very uh, misrepresents uh, those group of people, so that's not surprising that that's on here. Doolittle, I've heard nothing but terrible things about Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Welsh accent that he kind of randomly... He allegedly just randomly decided to do a Welsh accent and he doesn't really pull it off. So it's just kind of some weird uh, um, accent in the middle. And so that's that's, that's one of the things on here. Another uh, standout. Uh, one of these, they have this worst on-screen combo, which is is really funny. But um, <laughs> the one that's made me laugh was Adam Sandler and his grating simpleton voice for Hubby <laughs> Halloween. Hubie Halloween, yeah. Hubie Halloween. I didn't. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, there's some tremendous ones in here. Stuff at one point I might have wanted to watch. I mean, Doolittle was speculated to be like Robert Downey Jr.'s next big project, right? Like he came off Iron Man. He's not doing Sherlock Holmes anymore. Like this is going to be his next big property. And he comes swinging in with this Welsh accent that's just a total misfire. Uh, six nominations for Doolittle. Adam Sandler and David Spader in here. Interestingly enough, uh, Bloomhouse's Fantasy Island reboot that came out early last year, uh, that got five nominations, which is a big a big miss for them because usually Bloomhouse doesn't do great, but one movie get forgot five. about that. Yeah, man. Big miss. <laughs> and and one of the two two really interesting ones, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, has been nominated as well as Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani for his appearance as a supporting actor in Borat's subsequent movie film. Mike Lindell for his appearance as a documentary uh, witness in some kind of political film. Um, so that's kind of exciting. And Glenn Close got a Razzie this year. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting bit of trivia for her appearance in Hillbilly Elegy, which she was also subsequently nominated for an Oscar for. This makes her the, fir- the third actress in history uh, to be nominated for a Razzie <laughs> and an Oscar for the same performance. Pretty That's incredible. So yeah. I don't know what that means. She may not win one or both of them, I guess, but it's not just to be nominated, I suppose. Uh, I don't really look at the Razzies, Andy, but this year it's hard not to because the last year was so weird, right? Yeah, it's been a short year. and But, you know, you look for the Razzies for jokes, uh, mostly. I mean, there are bad movies, bad performances, but again, some of these... Um, like the worst on-screen combo and like Robert Downey Jr. and his utterly unconvincing Welsh accent. See, they mentioned it there. Harrison yeah. Ford and that totally fake-looking CGI dog. Um, you know, so the, there's some there's some jokes in here. 
uh, as well. And you know, some some actors have actually gone and collected their their award. I think Bruce Willis famously kind of collected his at once, or someone else. So you you can kind of spin it into a, you know a PR thing. Right, you can do a little bit with it. I know Halle Berry famously went and picked up hers um, for uh, what was it, Catwoman or something. Yeah, that that was a whole big thing. Um, yeah, def- definitely quite the list. I mean, go check it out for yourself online. There's really not much more to talk about. I did la- I did get a laugh out of Wonder Woman 1984 getting nominated for a Razzie uh, <laughs> in the worst remake ripoff or sequel category. That's funny. Um, otherwise, you know, a bit of a tongue in cheek kind of approach to the movies, but still an, an intriguing response to what has otherwise been a very lukewarm year at the movies. So we'll keep you posted. If anything cool wins, we'll let you know. Keep your own off script for more. Otherwise, things have been kind of good at the movies. We were a bit on the upswing, and we're surprised to see that Ryan the Last Dragon is kind of killing it at the box office. I mean, not with much money, 5.5 million in the US, but that's more than 50 million globally. Andy, what's going on at the box office? So, like you said, Ryan the Last Dragon was number one in the box office again. It it only fell about 35%, uh, and that's considering that uh, theaters in New York and LA are not... Uh, they just started opening and they're only at like uh, 25% capacity or about between 50 and 100 people. Uh, so that's really, uh, you know, still affecting things. Um, but the other big story is that apparently Avatar, the James Cameron film, was re-released uh, over in China and has added to its, I guess, total run. And it is now back to being the highest grossing movie past uh, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, Avatar is back on top. Boy, oh boy, you thought you had one over on James Cameron, didn't you, Marvel? That'll show you. I I mean, sure, right? Like, I guess it says you're on top for the title, but ultimately it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch, right? But didn't Endgame pull some kind of thing like this, like an extended run or something to beat it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, at at some point, where where do you, where's the cutoff? Like, what, what, what does it really count? Right. Like at this yeah. point, I, I mean, you could you could say how many there's been so many th- midnight screenings of Rocky Horror Picture Show. You could say that's like well high up there in, in the intake rate. Or you could just say, OK, it did all right when it came out. And that was that, and, you know, you, you bicker and you fight over who's got the biggest number. I, I suppose that really probably matters the most to James Cameron. Um, but I don't know. What, whatever. Whatever. Right. I am hey, glad it's doing great in China. Twenty one million dollars for an old movie is not too shabby for what it's worth. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also worth po- pointing out that um, a lot of uh, studios uh, here and uh, internationally have refused to play uh, Raya and the Last Dragon because it's available on, on Disney to rent. So a lot of theaters have refused to, um, you know, to screen it, which would, you know, that would have helped this number some more as well. Sure. We reported that last week with Cinemark. Um, nobody... I got a flat tire over going to see it. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. Real quick. Let's, let's, let's talk through the flat tire story. We need to, uh, so, so, so go ahead. So I went to see Raya and the last dragon, um, on, on Saturday afternoon, kind of good, you know, net matinee show. And I come out and like, my, my tire is like completely flat and on the ground and I have to change it in like, the, it's like kind of a busy parking lot. Cause there's like restaurants and bars. Around. It's a nice so part of people- town. You wouldn't saw it at a nice theater. Yeah, so yeah. there's all these people walking around, and I'm like having to like do car maintenance, like you jack up the car, and like it's it took forever. There were people honking, like trying to get into the spot, and did somebody really honk at you? Well, because they saw me go into the, to the, the the car, and they thought that I was just like taking my sweet time, and they didn't realize I was like having to swap out tires. I hope you like swung that big car jack at them. Like, look at look at what <laughs> I got to deal with here. Look at this flat yeah. tire. 
No one had, no one assisted me. No one offered their assistance. Never. Oh, well, this is America. No, <laughs> nobody helps. Yeah, that's not something we do. How long did it take you to change the whole thing? Uh, maybe between 20, 25 minutes or so. Well, thank seemed God. Like for, seemed like forever, though. Thank God you know how to do it. Like, there's definitely people out there who have no idea how to change a flat tire. would have been totally stuck. You're calling Uber, I guess, at that point, a AAA. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, had you not gone and seen Ride the Last Dragon in theaters, arguably this never would have happened. Exactly. Yeah. I could have paid paid the fee and watched it at home. Well, let us pay the fee and watch this. Uh, hear about this film from you and I, who actually bothered to watch it. Right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know anybody else that's watched this movie. Um, only because yeah, it's thirty bucks to watch it at home, and I think people are maybe a little burnt on the Mulan experience. But we'll probably see some numbers from Disney afterwards. See how it went as far as theaters go, though. I, I don't know. I'm anxious to hear who you saw in there. So. In lieu of getting to the Oscars in between our reviews, we're going to jump right into Ryan the Last Dragon. Andy has graciously agreed to take the review. Uh, Andy, please take it away. Raya and the Last Dragon. So this is the new animated film from uh, Disney Animation starring Kelly Marie Tran and Aquafina. Um, it takes place in the mythical land of Kumandra, which uh, means dragon, and it has c- these kinds of, I guess, five people, five kind of warring nations that all represent different parts of the dragon. You have the tail clan, the spine clan, heart, uh, fang, different parts of the dragon, and they are all kind of uh, adversaries. Uh, and you get this kind of long and complicated backstory about how the dragons in ancient times worked together to fight off a great evil and like their magic has, you know, been dispersed through the world and, and no one, you know, it's kind of ancient mythology. Um, but it all kind of comes crashing down when they, uh, they attempt to all meet, come together to meet as one people. It doesn't go well. Um, betrayal happens, tragedy strikes and, that's kind of our intro to the story, and then we we meet Raya, who is who is the young daughter of the leader of the uh, the heart heart clan. I think that's what they are, uh, heart people. Yeah, and she eventually goes on a quest to find the last dragon and kind of rediscover, rekindle the magic of these ancient dragons and reunite the people in this adventure uh, throughout throughout the land. Uh, so that's our that's our setup. I actually I really enjoy this actually, and I'm anxious to talk about it. Zach, what do you think? So I think Brian Last Dragon is a movie I really, really would have enjoyed if I was a kid. I kept thinking when I was watching, like, if I was a child, I would be super into what is happening. It feels very grand and vast. We have this very large land that's shaped like a dragon with dragons in it and this rich history that's very quickly explained at the beginning that goes back 500 years. We've got this culture. We have these five kind of tribes. We've got fighting. We've got action, adventure. We have a long quest up a river, like something out of Heart of Darkness. It feels very epic in scale. But it's also like an hour 45 and it covers a lot of ground really fast. And I think if you're a kid and you have the attention span of a child, that's not going to bother you at all because it moves and it's effective and you're jumping from bit to bit. But as an adult, it's like way too much. And I think it spins too many plates. It's a small misstep in what otherwise I think is a strong formula that Disney showed with Moana. I'm excited to jump into talking about it. Andy, where's the first place to get started? Um, well, why don't we start with some of our characters? So we have, uh, Raya, who's played by Kelly Marie Tran, uh, who got a breakout role in Star Wars, uh, The Last Jedi. 
the best of the recent trilogy. Yes. <laughs> and um yeah, you know, she's she's the uh the, the chief's daughter and she helps guard like the the dragon magic stone and uh she loses she basically loses her village in the beginning because they they have these evil things that kind of uh, they turn people to stone that's that's which is kind of a nice touch because that means people aren't dying you know, just turn to stone so right like, nobody ever really dies know. in disney right it's, yeah well yeah. it's it's you also don't have to start like bringing in you know killing people's parents which disney likes to do it's true <laughs> um uh so she you know she's a warrior she's a she's a fighter and uh you know she's kind, kind of uh reminds me a little bit of mad max she's in this wasteland trying to re- recover you know find the last dragon and and recover like the dragon's magic you also have a uh, Gemma chan who plays uh i almost said namari Mi- namari i almost said minari <laughs> namari namari uh who's uh kind of her rival from a warring clan and and it's it's interesting because all the people the clans are a little bit different and they they kind of have a little bit of prejudices about each other and that's kind of one of the the themes of of the film is like not having that kind of like prejudgment and like trusting people more uh we also meet uh the dragon named zisu uh, voiced by Aquafina in her raspy uh, <laughs> um, accent. Yeah, uh, she's she's a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot a lot of good jokes in there, and she it reminds me a little bit of Indiana Jones because they they got to kind of go on these adventures to to you know to get the ornaments. A lot of fetch quests. Um, yeah. and they meet they meet a lot of people along the way, and like she starts by herself, and she eventually kind of puts together this this band of people. Um, but there there's a lot of famous uh, voice actors or actors and voice actors here. Like we said, we have Kelly Marie Tran and Aquafina, as well as Gemma Chan, Daniel Day Kim from Lost, uh, Benedict Wong, and Sandra Oh are, are some of the standouts. Yeah, so a strong cast. Um, I really enjoy the voice acting in this. It's something uh, that was a real miss in the last children's animated film we watched, Earwig and the Witch. Like, I think it's noticeable. Maybe just to us because we watch a lot of movies on this show. But I think it's noticeable when, like, the voice acting just isn't quite up to snuff. And that's not a problem here. Disney Disney swings for the fences and they hit it, right? Kelly Marie Tran is great as Raya, this strong, independent warrior who's out doing her own thing. And is just trying to set right uh, this world that she's kind of been born into aquafina plays sisu who is just like wonderfully charming very wacky sidekick that's perfect for a disney flick right like she kind of comes along on this adventure and helps them out i definitely thought she was going to be more of like a a mystical being that we meet at the end and like no she's introduced like at the beginning of the second act pretty pretty quickly she she shows up and, and we're on our way um, you get a lot of really, like, really good voices here, uh, and people of color uh, who who are represented in this film properly. I think, and I think that's probably for the best. Um, this land that that, that we inhabit, uh, Kumandra, is what it's called, I believe. Uh, it's split into these five kind of regions or tribes, right? And 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 a lot of our cast is split into different regions, and they kind of have to come together to 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 overcome the adversity that has split them into these different tribes some five hundred years ago. Um, seems like a good place to jump into the plot. Right. So the, there is a lot going on. So there's there's kind of an intro at the beginning of the the land, the people, like what happened. You know, there were all these dragons. They they united together to fight off the e- evil force, the the Droon, I believe they're called. There's a little bit of an environmental message as well in in the film. The, there's a lot going on in the intro. And I honestly had a little bit of a hard time following because it's like yeah, it's it's a lot and it's kind of complicated. And it do, it does make more sense uh, the longer you go because the the plot is. Raya is searching for the last dragon to reunite 
to kind of reunite like these these stones that will hopefully you know bring the bring the dragon magic back and all these people that have been turned to stone will then be you know live again so it's um that kind of mystical quest adventures along the way and you know our characters you know face challenges and overcome things and and chain chains those kinds of very you know kind of stereotypical plot points but they're done really well so if I had to compare Raya to any recent uh, Disney film, I'd probably compare it most closely to Moana because yep. it is very much a similar format and structure. We have our character starting at the beginning of the movie. She's a young girl. Uh, something happens. She has to travel a very long distance through not pardon the pun uncharted waters, uh, uh, even though she is traveling on water in this film up a river. It's not the ocean like Moana. Uh, she has to face a bunch of different people and places and things and ultimately like discover kind of the hero inside of herself, right? Like that's, that's kind of our structure, but the thing Moana did really well, arguably poorly Moana had like two main characters. You have Moana and you've got whatever his other character's name is. Yeah. The Rock's character, Maui. Yeah. Maui. Yes. <laughs> and then they had like one lovable sidekick on this raft with them, which was like this chicken that didn't have any dialogue um, played by Alan Tudyk, who funnily enough, like the other lovable fluffy animal in this movie is also played by Alan Tudyk. That's kind of Disney's thing. I don't know if you've noticed him showing up in these animated films, but the thing Raya takes a misstep on, whereas Moana only had two people on the boat. Raya, by the end of the movie, has like 11. I mean, yeah. it's not actually 11 it's a whole, people. It's a whole gang It is a smorgasbord of characters, and it is not much longer. And like, I think that's where it does itself a disservice. It tries to take on too much. Like, it tries to add a couple of elements from each of these regions to kind of create like this melting pot of a, a, a adventuring troop by the end, almost like a, like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And, and it goes a little too far. You juggle that with like the five different tribe tribal settings that are spread throughout this world. And also like the massive exposition dump at the beginning of the movie to hit you with the 500 year history and also the dragons. It's just a lot, but I, it, it does. I did think it felt very grand. Right? Did you did you get that at all, Andy? Yeah, uh, um, it's definitely is large in scope. You know, this is encompassing their entire land, and yet we do get to meet the all five tribes. You know, when when we had an adventure in one area of, of the world, I was like, we're gonna we're gonna get to see everyone. We're gonna visit the, right. the five different different peoples. You know. Um, and kind of pick up. It reminds me a little bit of like an RPG where you like you're you start by yourself and you pick up party members <laughs> along yeah. the way, right? Um, and you all work work together uh, to o overcome. It's definitely taking on uh, a lot. Yeah, and I think that is is a good to me at least maybe an indicator of like Disney's production behind these things. Uh, reportedly, Frozen Two had like a ton of problems when they were when they were putting that movie together because they couldn't decide on a central direction. There were too many talking heads, too many cooks in the kitchen who were saying, hey, it should be this way, or no, this should be the conflict of the film, or maybe our character should do this. I think this movie has the same problem. And I started thinking that about halfway through it, and then by the time you get to credits, you realize this movie is directed by two people and then co-directed by two others, which still adds up to four directors. And it's written by, the story is written by eight people, and then the screenplay is two different people. So that's a lot. That's 10 writers and four directors on one 75 minute film. Like that's a lot. That's a lot. And like, I think it's probably indicative of where they had some problems, but it turns out they also did a lot of cultural investigating 
into these tribes because each tribe is different. Each one is reflective of like different sects of, of, I think our global society. Each one looks like a different part of like a country. We have one that looks a lot like kind of like Egypt. We have one that looks a lot like, um, kind of, kind of Eastern culture, Vietnam, South Korea, maybe like you, you have one that looks almost like Sweden, like, like Norwegian. Um, and that I think was really cool. I think that's part of what helps make it feel so grand is its settings. Yeah, like you said, the people are are very different. And again, that's one of the kind of messages of the film is every everyone kind of has uh, you know, prejudices about oh, the people from here are this and the people from there are that and like uh, you know, Ryas learned that that's not necessarily true or a lot of these things that she's heard aren't, you know, they're not they're that's not necessarily how they are and they, you know, she kind of has to learn to like meet these people and kind of see how they actually are in person. Yeah, a big kind of running theme of the film is trust. Uh, you have to be able to kind of let your guard down and trust other people. Obviously, the movie does not present that way. Looking at the trailers, right? Raya is this kind of battle-hardened warrior. She's got this really cool hat she wears and like a sword. And like fighting is a very big part of this film. In fact, it's one of the things the film does very well. The fight choreography is really good. The editing is almost too good. It's almost over-edited. There's, there's definitely some fight scenes in this that feel like something out of like a Liam Neeson taken film. Like it cuts around so fast. It's like, I can barely keep up with what's happening and I'm an adult. So I know a kid would probably be super into it. But for me, it's like, man, we're really, really moving quick here for, for Disney fight scenes. Like that's not something they do a lot. The last time I saw something like that was Mulan. Um, but I appreciated the way it was done. I, I think the animation is really tasteful. I think it looks really great. They, they've really nailed this like water effect and also lighting in this movie to produce like a really realistic looking effect and, and combine that with like this artificial lens blurring for things in the background versus foreground. And like you get a movie that looks very good. It's a very sharp looking film and it presents, I think, very strongly visually. Yeah, I, I think the the animation is you know pretty, it's top notch. Like yeah. the, it's animated really well. Um, you know, you have the the sets are very different. Or the, like the environments are very different. Um, our characters, like we have the you know Raya herself and other humanoid or human characters, and then we have the dragons. We have a uh, the this cute little baby with her like monkey army, and you know some other yeah. uh, characters we meet a lot of ways. And and just you know we we have different cities, different tribes. Like the animation is really is really good. It is. Um, I enjoyed the music. I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. Uh, there's not a lot of songs in this film. This is not one of the Disney like traditional musicals like Frozen or even Moana. Like not a lot of singing happens in this movie. Um, but I, I think it's well done for what it is. I, like I said, I, I can't shake this feeling that like if I was a child, I would really be into this movie. I feel like I would watch it a bunch. But as an adult, I'm like, it's all right. Uh, Andy, you, one, I want to know if you have any thoughts about that. If you were a kid versus adult watching this thing, uh, and two, how was your experience watching in the theater? Cause I want to talk about watching it at home. So I, I thought this was actually kind of a little bit complicated for a kid's film. Um, like, you know, we keep comparing it to Moana. Moana's Moana is written so much just, but it, it's, it's cleaner. Pared, pared, it, yeah, it's pared yeah. down. It's cleaner. It yep. just flows a little bit better. This, this movie is really busy. There's a lot of characters and a lot of plot and a lot to kind of keep up with. Um, there's a lot of fighting in it, which is like, so, I always feel weird about that in a kid's movie because I always like where they're, they're going <laughs> to like, you know, it's like right, they're going to do what they see. Like, so there's a, there's a parenting challenge there for, for people to, 
kind of deal with, but that, that kind of did uh, stick out to me. Um, as far as the, the theat theatrical experience. So I saw it, uh, there were only like two other people in the theater. Um, so, I mean, and it was fine. It was fine. It looked, you know, it looked fine. It was nice to be in, in a theater again. And you went and saw it in AMC, which means you didn't get any kind of discount, but I'm curious, what was the price of admission to watch this in a theater? Well, it was, they did, they do, they are boasting 30% like off of matinee showings, which was still like nine ninety five. Wow. Okay. Well, hey, ten bucks. So I paid thirty to watch it at home, and I have the ability to continue watching on Disney Plus as much as I'd like until they inevitably dump it onto the service in like T minus ninety days, right? I think from theatrical right. release. So I've got three months to watch it before everybody else. Great. You know, watching it at home, uh, it's definitely nice. You can kind of take your time. And if you get bored, you can hop on your phone and you can, you know, pause it if you want. You can, you can get up, go to the bathroom. You know, it's watching a movie at home. It's nice. A $30 price tag, though, hurts, man. Like, that's that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, and I know I'm not in, like, the right camp for that. And and I shouldn't be um, talking big game about how ooh, it feels like it's tough. Because really what who it's made for is parents, right? Parents who have kids who are going to watch this movie 10 times. So yeah, like you, you throw down 30 bucks to watch it, whatever. Like, you know, they'll, you know, they'll get a few views out of it and it'll be cool. Like, that's great. Um, I'm still sore on that $30 Disney POV, PVOD price though. So that's, that's, you know, the way well, it is. well, I mean, to be fair, so <laughs> between admission, the bunch of crunch I got and having to get my tire repaired, it, it ended up being about the same amount. So, and, well, and you get to keep watching it. So. Having, well, having to get, you get to keep driving on your tire. So, you know, <laughs> the, the bunch of crunch is up in the air. Um, are you ready for uh, recommendations? Yeah. Andy, would you recommend Riot and the Last Dragon? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good kids film. It's a lot of fun. It, there's a lot in there for adults, really enjoyable, much more than like we said, the Earwig and the Witch was uh, aimed at a very very young audience this is much more ma mature uh great vo voice acting great animation uh good score it's it's fun it's probably going to be i imagine this is probably going to get nominated uh for like an animated feature next year for an oscar I, i'm sure it'll be on that list yeah i i think it will likely make that as well i'd recommend it too it's it's not as good as moana i don't think i'm not even I'm not even sure if I like it more than Frozen 2, uh, but it's a fine entry into what Disney's doing. I, I think there's some innovation in the animation. I love the cast. I, I love that they're kind of embracing diversity for this picture. I think I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially when it comes to animated films. There's no better place to start breaking that ground. Um, strong performances all around. Like I said, a little a little rough to enjoy as an adult. I think I think it's not quite as thoughtful as I've come to kind of know Disney's more recent offerings, especially looking at something like Soul. But for what it's worth, I think your kids will like it. I think you'll probably enjoy it. I wouldn't say spend $30 on it if you have the means. Go see it in theaters or just wait 30 days, you know, 90 days and it'll come out like or, or bar somebody's Disney Plus log in do it that way. But um, otherwise, yeah, I, I'd recommend Ryan the Last Dragon. Solid picture from a solid studio. And with that, we need to jump into our next section. I don't have any kind of cool graphic for this. So for those of you watching on Facebook Live, sorry. But I'm excited to talk about it anyway. Andy, you want to introduce us here? It's time for the 2021, or no, they're the 2020 Oscar nominations. My banner definitely says 2021. I hate the way they number Oscars, Well, yeah, dude. It, it's, it's confusing. 
The awards are in 2021, but they're for the previous year, which is 2020. Stupid. There it is. 2020. Got it right. All right. So let's jump into this. Just like our Grammy noms and previous Oscar uh, nominations before this, we don't really have a whole lot of structure here. We're just going to kind of alternate categories and go down. We're not going to do all of them because that would take forever, but we're going to give ample time. These are the Oscars after all. Before we jump into it, Andy, I'm curious, reflecting on 2020, my God, how do you put together an award show? <laughs> for what I happened mean, the, last year the the field is much smaller and as we said the the window was extended into into february so two months added added to that so enough films came out but there's a lot you know a lot of big films absolutely absent from this list it kind of feels like the oscars of old when they would nominate a bunch of indies no one had seen or heard uh so it kind of feels uh, like that of course this show it has uh we are caught up and then one of my one of my elitist things that i love to do is see how many films i have seen of the that are nominated um you know when they come out before you know being told that they've hit the list so yeah six, what is this i think seven of eight i've seen seven of eight we have seen seven of eight i'm genuinely i've never hit the ringer i've never gotten all of them i'm mad we missed the father but maybe we can catch it before the oscars actually happen uh you want to jump in with best picture i hear i got it on screen yep so we have uh the father judas and the black messiah mank uh minari Nomadland. It's a good thing we reviewed those just last week. Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, I think that this is a great list and really indicative of some of the some of the best films that we did see this year. I've been going on about Sound of Metal since we saw it. Yeah, man. Um, and it was notoriously absent from the um, Golden Globes, which are trash awards, anyways. Um, so this this is a, a good list. It's surprising that Tenet is not here and. Christopher Nolan, I feel, has been snubbed because even though like Tenet isn't a perfect movie and it's got a lot of issues, it was the only big release all yes. year. They were weren't that was the only film that went on out on a limb to try and be released, um, and they they kind of took a financial hit uh, for doing that, and and it's been completely uh, ignored by these awards. Yeah, I I 100% think Tenet got snubbed. I'm shocked it's not on this best picture list. Like, even if it wasn't going to win, I think it deserves a nom. I mean, you can go up to 10 slots on the best picture thing. Like, they intentionally decided to leave it out. Somebody somewhere was like, no, we're not putting stupid Tenet on here. And that's a bummer because even though I had some problems with my experience of Tenet, overall it was positive and I would encourage other people to go see it. So I'm surprised it's not featured here any yeah. hot picks on um, what do you think andy what's going to take it you know i i don't i really don't know because it all it all depends on on the mood and that's a, one thing i wanted to remind uh, all our listeners that is that the oscars are incredibly political like these films these studios campaign for different films which means they're throwing lots of money at it there's money to be made and there's a lot of business behind it so it's not it's not you know the end all be all truth of what is or isn't actually the the best films of the year there's a lot that goes into the decision making. A lot of times, most of the, the Academy members don't even watch all the films half the time. So that's where, you know, famous people or famous names will get more recognition just because. Um, but from this list, we've seen everything except The Father. Uh, this is a really, that's a really tough list. It's, uh, a, it's these, a good list for what it's worth. Of these, my, my favorite would be uh, Sound of Metal, Minari, and probably Mank and Judas and the Mac Black Messiah. Uh, so Sound of Metal is going to be at the top of my list. I think that's really sticking out to me. But uh, yeah, who knows what the Academy will go. What do you think? 
I'm so pleased Sound of Metal got nominated because I yeah I really did fly under everybody's radar and like it's so cool to see it in the top contender for the year like I think that's a really deserving spot. I'm not sure it's gonna get it though and and so for for my picks I'd say probably Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank I guess I don't think it's really gonna get it either and then I'm gonna swing wide and say Nomadland. I think Minari probably could but I've got this crazy theory that since Parasite won last year and they caught a ton of heat they're gonna get too scared and they're not gonna actually go for it even though it is a quality film that is totally deserving to be on this list yeah. with everything else. It is political. I hate to say it, it is. And also, before we wrap this whole thing up, I do want to take a moment to talk about some interesting diverse trivia that's going on this year. There's some really interesting nominations that we're going to talk about after we're done here. So we'll keep moving through them, but we'll come back to that. Just keep keep an eye on that. Uh, for our next category, actor and a supporting role. I guess actress. I'm, I'm looking at a different yeah. list than you, aren't I? Is this the same one? Best picture, best director. Okay, so well, there you're, we go. go, you're going go. on the variety list. I'm on Sienna. Okay, let's go with variety. So best director. Uh, right. Nom- yes. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. The nominees <laughs> are the director, uh, directors for, and I'll just name the films, Another Round, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, and Promising Young Woman. Uh, a smaller category for sure. Uh, we see a lot of the hits from our best picture list, save for Another Round, which is a Polish film uh, starring Mads Mikkelsen that I've really wanted to watch, that just like The Father, we haven't had the opportunity yet, but hopefully we'll get to it before the Oscars come around. Uh, my favorite pick for this is probably David Fincher. I mean, he's my favorite director. I feel ob- obligated to say he's probably going to take it. Andy, what are you thinking? Yeah, usually it, it, I have to like the, the movie. And of these, I would actually, I, I think David Fincher uh, kind of does it for me. I do really like uh, Minari. I think that, that of this list, I think it, that's really the best. Chloe Zhao's been getting a lot of... Um, attention and this is the first time we're going to talk about this more uh later chloe Zhao and emerald fennel uh the first time two women have been nominated for uh best director huge yeah um and i hate to say this but they're both young and that's part of what makes me think uh they may not take it this year i feel like people voting would look at their names and go well they've got long careers ahead of them they're both great films i mean obviously they're here like eh, give me a year i'm sit on it but we'll see i mean who knows so uh, best actor, Andy. Oh God, your man's in here. <laughs> yeah, uh, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal. Yay! Chaz- Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Anthony Hopkins for The Father. Gary Oldman for Mank. Uh, Stephen Yoon for Minari. So my my pick for this, of course, is going to be Riz Ahmed for uh, Sound of Metal. It's probably going to go to Chadwick Boseman because he passed away this last year and it's a little bit more saccharine and, and also his performance is completely deserving. It, he gives an amazing performance in my Ryan's black bottom. Um, also a uh, historic time, uh, Steven Yoon first time, uh, an Asian actor has been nominated for uh, best actor. Um, Zach, what do you think? Um, tremendous list. I was going to say the, the other piece of trivia from this, uh, Riz Ahmed is the first time a Muslim actor has been nominated for best actor. And Anthony Hopkins is the oldest actor ever to be nominated for this category at 83 years old. Huge list. I mean, these five are, are contenders in every way. I, man, I really like Steven Yeun and Minari. I know he doesn't even have that many speaking lines, but like he just falls into that role. So good. Um, you know that hat he wears in that movie? I found out his mom gave that to him when he was 17. There's a bit of a personal kind of through line oh, wow. for that. I mean, Riz Ahmed is stunning in Sound of Metal. The man the man learned sign language for a year 
so he could like more convincingly give a performance on uh, on set. They didn't even talk. They did everything in sign language to be more like into what was happening in the film. Stunning work. Chadwick Boseman does not ever once soft pedal the performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. He is so good in that movie. And Gary Oldman's great in Mank, and I haven't seen Anthony Hopkins as the father. I don't know who to put at the top of this list. I guess my my hot take, it might be Chadwick Boseman. I mean, he'll be the first uh, posthumous nominee since Heath Ledger with The Dark Knight in 2008, 2006. Yeah. Um, you know, that's 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 not nothing. And and he's very, very good in that film. They're all very good in these. So he's probably my uh, my my long shot pick, I think. Am I up next? Best actress? Yep. I guess I am. Yeah. Oh, gosh. All right. Uh, best actress is going to go to uh, Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andre Day for United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby in Netflix's Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand in Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. Again, a stunning uh, list put together. I think... You know, with this nomination, Frances McDormand is the one of like six actors and actresses that have been nominated across five generations, which is nuts. Five decades. Five decades. Okay, that's it. Yeah. She's up there with like Peter O'Toole and Glenn Close and a couple others. Uh, Michael Caine is in that list. Not nothing. Um, I really like her in that movie. And Viola Davis is like transformed in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, man. She is unrecognizable. And also Viola Davis, I think, sets a record for this, too. She's she's now the most nominated black actress, I think, ever. Yes. Yeah. She's, that's also yeah, she's the, the Meryl Streep of uh, uh, of black actresses, which is <laughs> that's actually it's weird. She, that's both a compliment and insult to her because uh, she, she was everyone calls her the Meryl's the, the black Meryl Streep. But she's like, but I don't get Meryl, Meryl Streep money. So, well, that's that's very true. I'm going to throw it at Viola Davis. Seriously, yeah, she, she's so good in that movie. Same here, and and we haven't seen uh, United States versus Billy Holiday or Pieces of of a Woman. Um, Vanessa Kirby has done actually a lot of uh, action films. She was in Mission Impossible six seven, and and also in the uh, Fast and the Furious spinoff uh, Hobbs and Shaw. So that's mostly what she's been known for. But she did take on this um, dramatic role. I feel like Frances McDormand just kind of does a lot of staring in No Nomadland. She stares off into the landscape, but it, she's it, so good at the staring. That's the thing. <laughs> Again, like you know, not everything has to be like you can't handle the truth. But like again, I I, I can't think of anything memorable. And we talked before. Uh, Car- Carrie Mulligan is fine in Promising Young Woman, but I also didn't think it was like a standout performance. I really liked her in, in Promising Young Woman, but uh, maybe we should talk about that movie at the end of this list because it's got a few noms. And if you remember yeah. from our review, we both we both infamously were not fans of that film. So uh, maybe it's worth talking about. Uh, best actor in supporting. Oh, so <laughs> this is Sasha Baron Cohen uh, for the trial of the Chicago seven. I thought that was going to be for Borat. Yeah, me too. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. Paul Racy for Sound of Metal. Lakeith Stanfield also for Judas and the Black Messiah. So this is really strange that both Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya were both nominated for the same category for the same movie. Because um, Lakeith Stanfield is definitely the main actor. So I, I'm not sure why they went that direction. Maybe they just didn't, um, you know, they couldn't decide who to put in which and just wanted to give them both. So that the the downside of that is that kind of will split votes or possibly split votes. I didn't think Sasha Baron Cohen was 
really that standout in Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, Paul Racy is amazing in Sound of Metal. I feel like he's not well-known enough, so I, I don't see him getting uh, winning just because of recognition. Yeah, I'm I'm really frustrated, actually, by this one. Splitting Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield and putting them in the same category is a huge misstep, in my opinion. At the Golden Globes, Kaluuya was nominated as the lead. And then Lakeith Stanfield caught, I think, as uh, a, supporting. a nom for supporting. Whereas technically in the film, you're right. Lakeith Stanfield is the lead and Daniel Kalia is supporting as Fred Hampton. Uh, here they've decided to put them both in the same category, which I think is a horrible misstep because it means one of them will not win. I think one of them will win. I think either Daniel Kaluuya or Lakeith Stanfield will win in this category. I will be shocked if one of them doesn't. Um, you know, the other, the others turn out fantastic performances. They do. I mean, Leslie Odom Jr. is great as, 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 uh, um, oh God. Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Is he Malcolm X? No, he's not. He's, oh um, no, he's, uh, Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, he's fantastic. Satcha Baron Cohen, I actually really enjoyed, but he's Satcha Baron Cohen. He always turns out a pretty solid performance. And Paul Racy, I think isn't well known enough to actually win, but Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, I think are both deserving of awards and only one of them is getting one. And I think that's a huge misstep, but that's just me. Yeah. I guess you're up for best actress, right? Moving on, yeah, best yeah. actress in supporting role, uh, newcomer Maria Bakalova from Borat's subsequent movie film. So I knew Borat was on here somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really incredible performance from her in that movie. Uh, Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, uh, Olivia Coleman for The Father, which again we haven't seen. Amanda Seyfried uh, for Mank, the, her first nominee, and Yu Jung Yoon uh, for Minari, who is the grandmother uh, in in that film. Uh, so that that's also a historic, um, I think one of the first times a Korean actress has been nominated for best uh, supporting role. And uh, her, I think her, her entire role in that movie is is in Korean. So this is an interesting list. Um, I mean, it could go, again, well, I haven't seen The Father. I think actually Maria Bakalova should really, <laughs> she is arguably better in that movie than Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah, uh, she, she's I mean, you talk about transformative roles, like not only is she an unrecognizable actress, but has suddenly been thrust into the limelight here in the Oscars of all places because of her performance in the movie. She's the first Bulgarian actor or actress ever to make an Oscars list. So I think it's an honor um, certainly to be a part of it. We haven't seen The Father, but Olivia Colman uh, famously won the Oscar last year. The favorite. For The Favorite, yeah, which uh, was my second favorite film of the year. Uh, Glenn Close, uniquely, has been nominated <laughs> for an Oscar and a Razzie for the same performance. I don't know what that means. Um, my my hot take, the hottest take I got in here is going to be Amanda Seyfried. Because infamously, I am not an Amanda Seyfried fan. I, I, do, <laughs> I do not like her shtick. I, I don't know why. I feel like she's typecast into a role as like this like doe-eyed, over-the-moon, promising young woman character who I've never really been into because it hasn't been deep enough. And then she... Go ahead, Andy. I'm sorry. You were going to say something. Yeah. Well, a lot of it depends on how which way the the Academy goes. If they decide to like that they are really into Mank, then everything Mank will win. Yes. That, that, that kind of thing. So it, a lot of the attitudes go to that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is a very close um, category. Uh, I, for me, like I would love to, I would love to see Borat with the Borat film win an Oscar. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. I, 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 Amanda Seyfried. I'm not done. Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> 
She got. I'll tell this, you, this, this, that would have been hate She never. She never came. It's right. She never came back from Mamma Mia, but she did bank. She's got. She's got interviews where she says Fincher had her doing over a hundred takes in some scenes to get her character of Marion Crane perfectly right, and she hits it so good. This is the first Amanda Seyfried movie I've seen where I went, oh my god, she's amazing in this film. So she's my hot. She's my hot pick. She, she's my my. Long shot. We'll see what happens. She probably won't end up taking it, but you know, here's hoping. Best animated feature is going to go to one of these five films. Onward, Over the Moon, A Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, Soul, and Wolfwalkers on Apple TV+. Plus. This is almost the exact same list the Golden Gold Globes had, right? Uh, um, yeah, go ahead. It's it's, pro- it's probably going to go to a, a Pixar film. I would have to say Soul. I did see it's something about like using said the an- the Academy hates anime because there are a number of anime films, so uh, like a Silent Voice and some other things that played here. But um, yeah, nowhere on the list. Funny story. Yeah, Soul is probably my pick as well. Um, two things. Well, I'm thinking about them. One, anime is totally snubbed at the movies. I didn't think about that until I think I saw the same video you saw. Uh, shout out to TikTok for <laughs> having the <laughs> yeah, hottest, the hottest memes man. millennials can watch during quarantine. It's true. I, some of the best, some of the best anime films I've seen in my life have come out in the last two years. Not a single one has gotten any kind of nomination, which is insanity. Um, so that's already stunning. But secondly, uh, Wolf Walkers is going to be getting a theatrical release. Uh, it's going to be coming out in New York in the in this week, this Friday, actually the nineteenth, and then it's going to start coming out in North America through mostly Angelica theaters. If you have one near you, that's where I think it's going to be getting independent releases. So if I can catch it in Dallas, I'll try to go see it because I'd like to see it. And I think whoever owns Wolfwalker is starting to realize, oh, our movie's on Apple TV Plus and nobody's watching it. So maybe we'll get a chance to check out Wolfwalkers. But Saul's my hot take. Best adapted screenplay, Andy. You want to take this one, or should we just start skipping around? What do you think? Are yeah, we, yeah, because uh, yeah. those are. I mean, most of the films that we've started getting into some weird ones. Are, yeah. Are, um. Well, and also it's just the films that we that were that we've already talked about. Um. I did want to mention uh, best original song. Uh, the song from the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, the story of Fire Saga. Um. The the Will Ferrell movie. One of the songs from that. Uh, has been nominated, uh, which I think is pretty pretty funny, um, from the town of Husavik. Yeah, that that was definitely an odd one. Um, I wanted to take it. Yeah, I was I was going to say I was disappointed that um, Tenet was not nominated was not nominated for best original score, um, and the the five nominees for that were uh, To Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World, and Soul. Uh, not none of these movies I think had well aside from Soul. Soul had a really excellent soundtrack, but the rest of them were not really that did not stand out to me. Um, and especially news of the world. Like I don't even know what was going on in that. Um, but I really felt the tenant should have been on there. Yeah. I'm surprised tenant didn't appear in film editing. I like really surprised Tenet didn't appear in film editing because there's a lot of scenes in tenant where I can't tell if they intentionally shot it in camera a certain way or if they reversed it. Um, there's some really stunning film editing in, I mean, Tenet is just not, I mean, is it here for anything? Did it get any noms? I wonder if, if, um, production design. Okay. That's not bad. Uh, also best visual effects. Okay. Like, all right. Those are good categories to get nominated in for Tenet. So I wonder if they just didn't decided not to campaign, which is totally plausible. They may just thought of, you know, this is a weird year. We don't care about the, the awards. We're not going to push it. Or they may be, I almost 
wonder if they're not persona non grata because of of Christopher Nolan being so vocal against you know Warner Brothers' decision to do hybrid releases. God, I hope I so hope Nolan goes to another studio like Sony, and they're like, yeah, we'll give you a, a third of the budget you were getting at Warner Brothers. Good luck. I think I genuinely think it'd be good for him. I really do. I think yeah. that would I think that would help him in his career, but. Otherwise, you know, a pretty good list. Yeah, costume design, uh, makeup. There's some good categories in there. I'm hoping Emma picks up a couple because I think that movie was grossly understated. Uh, Mank obviously is in those categories as well. Otherwise, not so bad for you know what for for turning out an award show following 2020. I'm I'm surprised at what's come out of it. I guess I'm not surprised to see that we've seen so many of these films, but I'm surprised things went so well. So yeah. That's 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 my hot take. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so the the awards are actually next month at the I believe the end of April. I don't know the exact date. Uh, So we got about a month to uh, speculate and see what's what they're going to do. They're going to be doing a very small show um, with just only um, presenters and uh, potential award recipients. It's not going to be a big, you know, huge uh, theater filled thing like they normally do. Uh, So we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. Otherwise, a pretty good year at the movies. Now, regarding that year, that trivia I was mentioning, we're going to talk about the end. Going to be honest, we definitely peppered most of it throughout this bit. I think we, yeah. bit, <laughs> I think we talked about most of it. There's, yeah, there's only a couple of things I wanted to mention. There are nine uh, persons of color that are nominated in act- acting categories. This is, a, this is an all-time diversity record for the Academy Awards. Nine is the most they've ever done. Obviously, you've got a lot of people hitting headlines, Stephen Yoon being the first East Asian Asian American actor. Uh, to receive the Best Actor nom, uh, Riz Ahmed being the first Muslim actor is huge. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., interestingly enough, for One Night in Miami, is the fourth performer in a row to be nominated in both an acting category and original song category. That started with Mary J. Blige in Mud- Mudbound way back in 2017, which we actually watched on which this show. Which we also reviewed on the yeah, show. Yeah, and you can right. go you find heard it here first. You did. You did hear it here first. That's true. So... Not a bad year for the Oscars. I'll be surprised if they catch a lot of heat for diversity. Because, I mean, the Golden Globes obviously caught it from Minari, putting them in the foreign language section and not technically foreign film. Um, I don't see that happening here. I think they've got a pretty bulletproof list. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great list. And it's one of those things that, like, all these awards are completely deserved. Um, you know, there there's no kind of, like you know, affirmative action or something which people will probably accuse them of. Uh, but all these performances are, are incredible. All these actors are uh, top notch and it's great to see, see them finally kind of getting uh, recognition. Yeah. With that, we should jump into our last review. We of course will be reviewing the Oscars in full when they happen on this show. So if you want to know what's going on and you want more hot takes from us, keep it here on off script for more. Follow us on Facebook to catch our live streams and you know, subscribe or whatever. I'll, I'll do the plugs at the end for now. We got to get to the goods a while back, like, like eight months ago. So it was really like six weeks ago. Somebody on Twitter hit me up and they said, Hey, can you review LA confidential? If you haven't any thoughts, what do you think? I had never seen this film. Uh, Jamal Park recommended this for me at Mapstone Park on Twitter. Go follow him. Uh, tell him we sent you. I had never seen it. Andy had a long time ago, right? Andy, do I yeah, have that wrong? Yeah, long time. I couldn't remember half of what happened. Perfect. So, so I'm I'm, I'm in the right frame of mind, and and so I, I wanted to, you know, do our due diligence and get to it. But the problem was we we're right in the middle of, of of movie season. All the awards are coming up, so we wanted to take some time, make sure we had time to see it. I think we finally got it. We've watched LA Confidential. We're excited to review it. So I'll be taking the summary on this. Please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is LA Confidential. 
They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze. Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. So it's 1950s Los Angeles. Three policemen are hard on the job. One straight-laced, one brutal, and one sleazy. And they're all out to investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice. LA, LA Confidential came out in 1997, starring Kevin Spacey, Guy Pierce, uh, Russell Crowe, and Kim Bassinger, um, alongside Danny DeVito in an additional kind of role. Uh, and it definitely swept the stage. Uh, Kim Bassinger won an Academy Award for this role, which surprised me after watching the film. Uh, there, there, there was some... I, th I think I think this movie was well received when it came out, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, I don't remember it because I was a lot younger back then and I'd never seen it. But watching it now is definitely an experience. It is a four dollar <laughs> rental on any VOD service, as far as I can tell, because whoever owns the rights to streaming for L.A. Confidential has decided they're not going to sell. Um, you got to rent it to watch it. Otherwise, that's the movie. Uh, Andy, what did you think of L.A. Confidential? So again, it's a who's who uh, mystery noir, very much in the style of uh, things like Chinatown or, uh, well, it came out before Mulholland Drive, but it's that LA mystery kind of movie. Also reminded me a little bit of Under the Silver Lake, um, that this genre of mysteries in LA is, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, we, we have this mystery of, of there, there's a power vacuum by gangster Mickey Cohen being taken, uh, you know, he's been sent to prison and, and now everyone's kind of trying to eat up territory or take over, you know, whatever business. And, uh, we don't really know who's to blame. And in the meantime, our characters are, you know, we have Guy Pierce as the, the young and up and coming and, you know, strong moral compass greenhorn, who's going to do things by the book. And then you, you have Russell Crowe, who's always done, you know, he's, he's a hard, hard hidden, hard drinking, um, you know, guy who he'll, he'll go outside the law, you know, to, for, for justice and that, that kind of, you know, there's, there's a lot of like period appropriate, you know, uh, attitudes towards like women and minorities in here, which we're going to talk about more later. Um, but the, the, you have these strong personalities. Uh, Guy Pierce is trying to do things right, but he's also got a, he's politically minded. He wants to move up in, in the force. You have, uh, like I said, Russell Crowe's kind of the muscle who's got the, this code about, he's got a thing, thing for uh against be beating up women uh and then kevin spacey is a he's a he's a tv or he's a consultant for a tv show of a tv cop and um he you know that's a big part of what he does and he also works with danny De devito to kind of set up stings uh for his paper and uh, so th there's a lot going on here in the meantime they're trying to solve uh this mystery of this uh gruesome murders of uh that happened in this little diner yeah. Um, so LA Confidential is based on a book uh, by James Elroy um, called LA Confidential. Same name. Uh, it's directed by a man named Curtis Hansen, who other than Eight Mile, the, the, the yeah, that's what I know him best. For. Yeah. Other than other than Eight Mile, the, the Eminem f feature, he has done like nothing particularly outstanding. I did a little research into it because I want to know where this movie came from because long. This is a long picture and it feels very grand. We have three protagonists, um, all cut from very different cloth, two of which are Australian. Um, who present as American in this film, which was a big surprise for Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce to land these roles. Um, they, they did not think they were going to get them and were surprised when they had them. Um, but uh, LA Confidential feels very large. It feels very sweeping and it feels like it covers this like broad swath of Los Angeles. It talks about the city of angels and it's, it's, it's called LA Confidential because it's loosely based on this 
kind of kind of gossip tabloid in the universe of the film called Hush Hush, which uh, Danny DeVito is the kind kind of head writer for. Um, that's the idea that, that we're getting the inside scoop on like what's really going on with the movie stars, right? Of 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 the city of angels, Los Angeles. And our, our three protagonists are, like Andy said, very different, very hard boiled. One of them is very straight laced and wants to move up. The other one is Guy Pierce's character. Uh, uh, Russell Crowe is a <laughs> just kind of a drunk ass. That's just kind of his. It's kind He's of a bull. his role. Bull in a china shop. I, yeah, and and Kevin Spacey is like this smooth, slick talking TV cop. That's kind of our roles, which feels so good for all of them, except for Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe. Right, with <laughs> two of the three, Kevin Spacey feels perfect. As like the sleazy cop who's like trying to be on TV and slick talking and fast and wears nice suits. Totally makes sense. Checks the box. Guy Pierce is like this gonna do good, always looking to do the right thing no matter what cop. is pretty good, but Guy Pierce traditionally plays a villain. And in a weird way, for the first two thirds of this movie, he kind of feels like a bad guy, which I don't get because he's the only decent cop on the force. Everybody else is horribly crooked and drunk at work and awful and typically beats women and people of color. And Russell Crowe is supposed to be cast as like this monstrous dude. Russell Crowe, according to the book, I looked this up. Russell Crowe is supposed to be built like Dave Bautista. He is supposed to be huge and lurking and, a, and just a monster. People are supposed to be afraid of this dude. He is shorter than almost everybody else in the cast. He is hardly <laughs> built like Bane uh, out of out of the Dark Knight. Out of Dark Knight. Yeah, he's not big in this film. No, at all. he's like, not. In fact, he almost turned down the role because he didn't think he would get it because he was like, "I don't look intimidating enough." Reportedly, to be more in character for this film, Russell Crowe. This is trivia we don't need. Russell Crowe, when he when he was living <laughs> in L.A. to shoot the movie, he rented an apartment that was too small. That had a low ceiling. You almost had a duck to live in the place while he was living, living, living in town for the set. Uh, just so when he arrived on set, he would feel like a giant. That was like his move. And it totally, to me, totally misses. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think two of them are almost miscast, but very good at what they do. I think Kevin Spacey's great, but I feel weird saying Kevin Spacey's great in 2021. Um, We'll talk about the problems. It, Let's talk about the problems of this movie at the end, I guess, because this movie yeah. is, does present problematic now. It, it should probably come with some kind of disclaimer at the beginning. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna mention that, um, yeah, uh, Kim Basinger uh, pl- plays the uh, kind of role of the femme fatale, who yeah. is, you know, very stereotypical of, of these kind of noir films. Uh, no, no different here. Uh, there's, there's a mystery within mysteries because there is, you know, there are series of murders being solved. There is a uh, rich mogul played by uh, David Strathairn, who's, you know, we, we know he's into some sort of vice of like, uh, you know, prostitution, drugs, and some other things, but we don't really know. He's very wealthy and keep himself really protected. Um, Kim Basinger's uh, wrapped up in it all, and that's that's the thing. There's all these elements, all these seemingly disparate elements that somehow kind of come together and that's that's the mystery we're trying to to get through right and and that mystery is in a word complicated um i i don't know if you recall your first time watching la confidential andy were you at all confused or were you able to keep up with everything pretty good because i'm gonna be honest i kind of got lost watching this movie like i i i didn't i got I, I, need, I need to watch it again, a hundred percent. Yes, I got I got a little lost this time, and I've seen it before. Yeah, like it's um, it's worth a second watch, I think for sure. There's a lot of names, and and a lot of names that aren't put to to faces 
a, a lot of times. You know, people are referred to in conversation a lot, and you meet them later, but sometimes it's just, it's like, I forgot um, Danny DeVito's character, and when they referred to him, I was like, who is that? His name is Sid something, I think. Um, and I was like, I don't know who that is. Who are they talking about? You know, and this, like, and I've seen this before. So there's a lot of names, a lot of people to keep up with. Yeah. So there's, I think, something like 83 speaking parts in this film. Um, which is a lot for a movie. I mean, that may not sound like a lot on paper, but typically films do not have that many speaking roles like on camera, not to mention just like offside extras and backgrounds, right? Like, so that's a lot of people to juggle. A lot of them have names and, and small characteristics about them. I mean, they're not huge people. Our, our main players really are featured on the poster. I mean, there's not a whole lot to it. They're who I said at the top, but it's a lot to juggle. Yeah. And, and it's, Challenging because a lot of the story is told through dialogue. I think Curtis Hansen, when he when he put this movie together, has not done a whole lot of movies before or since, mind you. Um, this is definitely his biggest one. I think he didn't really he was very passionate about the film. He he's the reason it happened. He's the reason it got ad ad adapted in the first place. He was pining to to make LA Confidential ever since he read the book and finally got it done. But I think he looked a little too literally into like the the telling of what's happening and not the showing. Because it's not a lot of the dialogue is not particularly cinematic. It's characters just talking to each other and just throwing names across the screen. And you're like, what are you talking about? Who? Who is that? Who is that? Your police where? captain? Yeah. Where, where was that? Like, it, it really comes at you fast. And when it's juggling three protagonists, it makes it a little hard to, to keep up. But I think that acting is what helps cut through that because our three leads, Kim Bassinger and Danny DeVito, are all really excellent in this picture. And I do want to talk about them a little bit, even though I already said I didn't think much of Russell Crowe in this movie. <laughs> um, right. So let me see. Uh, Danny DeVito's great. Like he, he plays yeah. this. I mean, he's basically He's, he's DeVito. Reynolds. Yeah, right. He's, he's Frank, Frank Reynolds. Reynolds from Sunny. Yeah. Like he, yes. Yeah, he, he's a sleazy uh, kind of pulp magazine writer who, uh, you know, he writes about different cr crime happening in LA, but he kind of sets up some of these, you know, he'll get tipped off. Oh, you know, this actor is going to be doing drugs. And then they, they bust. Then he calls a cop on him to get, you know, with the cameras ready so we can bust them and have, you know, stories to write. Yep. Um, so, and he's, he's perfect in that role. Uh, Kevin Spacey, you know, is kind of the, you know, he's Kevin Spacey. And he, he's, he, he, he's the second largest feature on the poster and he's definitely not the second largest feature in the film. So Remember, I told you he wasn't the, the main character. He, he, he appears me. to be the main character looking at the poster. He really <laughs> does. I mean, behind Kim Bassinger, of course, but. Yeah. And he, and he's kind of, you know, he's benefiting from the, the, you know, the pay, cause he's like the TV cop that shows up to help Danny DeVito. And he, he, uh, you know, is on these, these shows as consultant, um, kind of, kind of like a uh, dragnet or those, those fit shows from the fifties and sixties. Uh, so he, he definitely is really leaning into that, like semi movie star, uh, lifestyle. Horribly corrupt. Yeah. Yes. Everyone's corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. I guess they are. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to defend Guy Pierce's character. But yes, even in his way, he's he's not a great guy. He's he's, sli he's slightly less corrupt. Yeah. Well, so yeah, like Kevin Spacey is is excellent in his performance, which is no surprise. This is 97 Spacey. This is the height of his career. He's so slick and so smooth. And he's sliding money across the table to people like with a, with a wink and a nod. Like, it's cool. We're all cool here. And you think the world of him, like he's great in this movie. Uh, Russell Crowe, not a fan, um, but you know that's okay. Uh, it's not that there, there, there are movies that Russell Crowe is featured in that I love. Ridley Scott's Gladiator, obviously, he's tremendous in it. Like this movie was just not like 
And I think a big part of that is due to Bud White, his character, who's just like a total asshole. Like, <laughs> just a, like be like, I don't know. I what's what's a good well, way he, to like encapsulate he, he, who this guy is? He has this weird code where, like, you know, if he finds out that someone so that someone's like beating their wife, he's gonna go beat them up. You know, so he kind of it's like this toxic right. chivalry thing. But then, like, he can't, he's just kind of a loose cannon. He'll beat up anyone. Right. He's also w- like wife dr- beaters and other people. Yeah. He's also he's- like drinking on the clock. He's beating up people of color. He's not. He he never snitches on fellow cops when they do bad things. He's like, nope, I'm not a snitch. I don't care. And it's like, okay, you don't have to be a snitch. You do the right thing. It's your job. Like your job is justice, and that is never really like addressed in this movie much at all. I mean, I guess it is, but like in the most back, the the forefront of this film is like how tough things get to be in Los Angeles. The background is actual justice. Like that's that's kind of the setting right like what's what's happening here is the crooked stuff it's kevin spacey doing deals it's it's bud white not selling out other cops it's that's that's kind of the forefront of what we're looking at here it's corruption and and of course we have guy pierce who is the straight-laced individual who's just trying to move up but unfortunately is willing to take too many steps to do that and starts to like radically accept responsibility he probably can't handle um, to the detriment of the service, right? Like at one point he's, he's, he's awarded Lieutenant and he says, well, I also want to be a detective and that's that. And it's like, okay, hold on. Taking a Lieutenant is a huge leap for a Sergeant. You're getting a ton of new responsibilities. And also now you want to be a detective too. And the cops just give it to him. Like, that's okay. It's like, well, hold on. Like there, there's, there's a structure and an order to these things. You have to learn and grow one opportunity to time guy Pierce, but that does not happen for his character. He wants to do the right thing so quickly. He oversteps. I think. And that's kind of where he ends up corrupt. So none of them are particularly good individuals, right? Do I, do I have a read on that? No, no, that's, that's completely. And I, yeah. And that's kind of how the neo-noir films are there. The, uh, you know, you kind of have a compromise or kind of an anti-hero uh, protagonist. And that like, this is no different. No, but this movie is, you know, grand, I think. And it's worth talking about why that is first, the runtime it's a little over two hours, I think two hours, 19 or something, Yeah, which feels large, especially for a movie that came out in 97. There weren't a whole lot of movies that were coming out that were like pushing two and a half hours. So that's pretty big. You've got a killer cast, right? And that feels huge. It's, it's called LA confidential, right? It's, it's about Los Angeles, movie stars and bright lights. Part of the, part of the whole theme of, of what, of the central conflict in the film is, is, is a prostitution ring of movies star lookalikes which Kim Bassinger obviously is featured in um so it feels very large but something the movie didn't do very well I think is address location there's not a lot of exterior shots in this film most of the first act and and a big chunk of the second act is all interiors they're inside the police station they're inside a hospital they're inside an apartment complex and you're never like outside and I thought when I was watching this movie of movies like La La Land where like so much of that movie takes place outside in the hills of Los Angeles or like once upon a time in Hollywood where you've got like these great big sweeping sunsets over the Hollywood Boulevard sign, you know, like stuff like that. And this movie like doesn't really get into that until the second half of the film when they start driving around to cases and like, you know, go going to investigate things. Then you'll get old cars because this is the 50s. Then you'll get kind of kind of out exterior landscapes. But for the most part, like you don't get a lot of actual setting of los angeles and it's weird because that's supposed to be such a central part of the film yeah you don't 
nothing really looks like LA. You don't get a lot of uh, landmarks like you like you were saying. Yeah, um, it kind of. I mean, maybe the weather, maybe some of the. I actually, I've the, got two the, reasons why that is. I, I did you got you got some trivia for you. All right, okay. first off, <laughs> go on, go on. First off, in the 1950s in Los Angeles, no building was allowed to be taller than City Hall. So to make the film look more like period appropriate, they never shot any buildings that were taller than like two or three stories ever. Like, and right. if they did, they had to like trick it or they had to like tilt the camera a certain way to kind of cheat it so it didn't look bigger. And that I think extremely limits their ability to get exterior shots. Secondly, Curtis Hansen, being an early director and maybe didn't have the best direction here, uh, instructed his cinematographer to shoot the film like a 90s film. He said, I don't want it to look nostalgic. I don't want to use golden lights. and I don't want it to look like this kind of sunset movie. I don't want it to look like we're trying to capture nostalgia. I want it to look like a movie that's shot in the 90s. I want it to look like a movie that's made today, even though it looks like the 50s. And that's part of the reason why I feel like a lot of our actors almost look out of costume in places. I'm like, that, that doesn't look like a, that doesn't, that doesn't look like a suit you would wear in the fifties. It looks like a costume for a suit you'd wear in the fifties. Like it all looks <laughs> right. a little fake. It all looks a little phony, but maybe that's part of the point. Cause yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I, I felt, I felt like Russell Crowe kind of looks sickly. He looks super pale the entire time. He looks like he's eating some meat. Yeah. It's, you got to fill <laughs> yeah. out kid. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because he was living cards. in a small apartment when they were shooting the film. Maybe that's got something to do with it. <laughs> So I think that that kind of leads uh, what is going to be another conversation is going to be um, some kind of problematic elements of this film. And I feel like a lot of things that just haven't um, aged yeah. particularly well. And I think overall, like this, this film is, you know, it's very much it it's made, you know, 20, almost 25 years ago in an era of kind of like it's very film cop film or TV cop like and there's a lot of pretty gross miscarriages of, of justice that kind of, you're just supposed to kind of go along with cause it's like, well, it's for the, I know he's guilty. So it's okay that I beat a confession out of him uh, kind of thing. But there's a lot of really problematic things in this movie. So uh, yeah. for instance, um, at one point, several minorities are blamed for uh, crime. They didn't commit uh, Russell Crowe shoots, shoots an unarmed black man and then plants uh, a gun on him. Uh, you know, it, but it's, and it, but all these things are justified. They're like, well, the ends justify the means. And that's kind of, this movie comes from an era of like kind of cop worship, police, you know, kind of yes. detective, uh, idealism of, of how justice should be carried out as opposed to how it's actually carried out. Everyone is just kind of violating civil rights, uh, left and right. And it just, well, it doesn't matter because it's, you know, it's, it's a cool movie and there's shootouts and, and things like that. So in light of, you know, a lot of recent, uh, you know, stories and issues, social issues involving police brutality and uh, other, you know, social problems, this movie, like, looks really, really bad. The other big problem is the uh, portrayal of women uh, in this movie. Uh, they are all prostitutes. Yeah. Or, uh, or victims of some sort. Uh, Kim Basinger, uh, she's, she's a sex worker. Um, other... There's basically one other woman you, you meet, same thing. That's basically all their roles. They're just kind of like, they're to be sexual icons and they don't really have much agency outside of that. Certainly not involved in the police force. If you were to make this movie today, it would be completely different, wildly different. Yeah, if you made this movie today, nobody would stream it. Like, I mean, uh, it's not on streaming services now, but you can run it for VOD. But like, if this was made now, like Netflix would be like, we're not picking this up. Absolutely not. We're not putting that on our platform. Like, and, and I know a lot of people say, well, they just don't make movies like they used to, you know, you can, you can do something like blazing saddles today. That's different. 
like Blazing Saddles is a comedy that's swinging upward at the problems that are present. This embraces them and celebrates them. This movie like regularly glorifies beating information out of innocent witnesses, um, interrogation, torture at one point, uh, prostitution, murder, (laughs) beating women. Yeah. It's just like, what the hell are we watching? Drug use, like bribery, corruption, like, and this is, this is not only like accepted, this is the point of the film. And like, what's frustrating is a few things. One, no woman, as far as I could tell, exists in this film other than to A, get beat by a man or to serve a man. And B, (laughs) the, 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 Corruption is limited exclusively to the smallest parts of the police force because the people above the police force, like the, 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 I don't know what the, the master at arms or commissioners or whatever. Or yeah. Whatever power police works. Um, they're all good. They're all straight laced individuals. Like we're, we're really trying to clean up the force, you know, and that, that guy Pierce, he's doing a great job. He's, he's, he's on the up and up cause he tells the truth. Everybody else is like a scummy piece of shit that can't get fired, right? But <laughs> Bud White incites a riot by by well, okay, I'm sorry. Bud White's partner, Russell Crowe's partner, incites a, a a small prison riot between cops and between cops and prisoners by beating the hell out of people of color for nothing. And then Bud White helps him, defends him, gets thrown off the force and subsequently put back on the force within minutes on screen <laughs> and it is never addressed again. Like I think I, I feel weird saying this because I feel like I know people who like this film. I genuinely did like felt unpleasant sitting in my chair watching this movie. I was like, I, I find it hard to believe that this is not only acceptable, but glorified. And for the people who out, out there who would say, well, it's a movie, right? It's fantasy. Dude, I don't think that's what this was supposed to be. Like, I don't think when this came out in 97, this was supposed to be a gag. And the reason I say that is because Kim Bassinger won a freaking Oscar for it. Like, they loved this movie in 97. They ate this up. They were all about it. And we're not that far from that now. And it's very different. It's very different. And I feel weird watching it. Yeah, I, I did the same thing where it was like, you know, I can watch this in a historical concept in a big historical context to say, okay, this was made in an age of when we had different vision, uh, different views on like what TV policing was and film policing is, which is very much in a kind of fantasy uh, style. The other thing that really bothers me about this is that, you know, our protagonists kind of have a little bit of guilt and kind of change a little bit, but it's after they've done something, horrendous and like you know um kevin spacey gets someone killed you know on accident and he's like oh maybe i sh- maybe i shouldn't set up these smut stories anymore oh well, you know he's like and you know Ru- russell crowe same thing he's like uh he beat someone half to death and then he's like oh you know i kind of feel bad about it and then like guy pierce uh he kills the wrong men uh for a crime they didn't commit and he's like oh horribly kills them yes yeah he's like oh man yeah i guess that's not the way you know so it's it's so it's it's like you know you have these white male protagonists who are feeling a little bit guilty over like you know crimes against humanity yeah like and just, they're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta be better. Right, I just and killed, killed three men. And the film makes no attempt to slow down. Like, whereas just microcosms of these incidents would make for an entire film now, right? Like, just one of these things could make for a whole movie. Russell Crowe beating up one guy could make for an entire film now. Instead, this movie like just brushes by it, like it's nothing. It's nuts to me. 
and this is this is just the way the film's presented. It's unique in that way. And I think I see why people liked it. I think I see why, because I think in 97, people didn't think this stuff was like particularly they didn't real. Correlate, like, it was like, fantasy. Yeah, real, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, it's this 1950s Hollywood land. Like that's not real. And now it's like, no, that stuff happens like a lot. <laughs> and, and back then we were glorifying it with movies like this. And maybe I'm wrong. Like, And that's a thing. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. it'd be one thing if it'd be one thing if you were making like you know a film that was like, you know, this is how things were used to be. They were wrong. We've changed. We've come a long way. But it's like we said. No, it's glor. It's glorifying all these things. Like yes, Russell Crowe is glorified for beating everyone up. You know, uh, Guy Pierce's character is glorified for getting confessions from people who didn't commit a, a crime you know it's 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 celebrated it's not it's not ironic it's not no. trying to show well this is you know historical it's just yeah it, it's fan it's a, just a kind of a grotesque fantasy yeah but, but russell crowe's character is thrown out of the forest and then subsequently invited back on he is rewarded for what he's done uh, guy pierce's character ed exley is is promoted regularly throughout the film Kevin Spacey's character runs into some trouble, but that's only because he gets double crossed by worse cops. Like it's not like justice <laughs> is ever served here. Like it doesn't ever get better. It just gets worse. And then the movie kind of just ends. And like, I, I need to watch it again. And what I need to do is I need a really strong defense of this movie to help me shift my thinking because like upon initial watch, like it's not strong. I mean, I mean the film is strong, but, but the, the subject matter within is horribly problematic. Well, it's almost, it's almost like a, uh, you know, small corruptions are okay because we, we defeated the big corruption, which was, you know, we got to the big bad and, you know, undid his operation. So everything we, all the yeah. wrongs we did along the way. It's cool that I murdered three dudes for no reason with a shotgun. Like, <laughs> Because we eventually kind of got to the bottom of it. Yeah. No, it's not cool. Like it's horribly wrong and arguably well, like worse than the problem you were trying to solve. Yeah. And what <sighs> makes it worse is that it's all, you know, that's in the movie that's happening to all minority characters. Yes. Women and people of color are all, are all, all treated poorly in this movie. Like it's, it's really something else. And I'm glad we watched it because it's been a while since I watched a movie for the show and kind of turned it over like this in my head. Because I know people that have liked this film and encouraged me to watch it in the past. Check out LA Confidential. It's really cool. I think it does a lot of cool things, but like, man, it has aged so poorly. Um, and I, 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 I have a hard time seeing the forest for the trees when it comes to that stuff. And I wish I didn't, but... I don't know. I, I got a conscience, I guess. <laughs> time for recommendations. Yeah, time for recommendations. Andy, would you recommend LA Confidential? This is a weird one. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, a strong no outside of uh, historical context. Like, I would not watch this for entertainment or you know show it to anyone or sit, say that's my favorite movie. Yeah. Um. It is. You know, it is. It was a big film of the late '90s. It does have good performances. It's a throwback to to noir films of the 40s uh the la mystery there are good things about it but the problems it have are so glaring and so you know these are they reflect you know problems that still exist i mean that's about the 50s we're here in 2021 still dealing with a lot of these kinds of police corruption issues so you can't i i can't really ignore that in good faith so you know i would watch it like i would watch birth of a nation uh you know in a historical context only so other than that i would not recommend yeah i think i'd pass on it too um, I'll tell you the, the, and there's a couple reasons why one, I would not encourage you to pay to watch this film. If you have it on DVD, if you see it on Netflix one day, I guess go for it. But I would bet if this movie shows up 
on Netflix, if this ever if this ever makes it onto a regular streaming platform, I'll bet we get some kind of article from BuzzFeed or Vanity Fair going over exactly what we're talking about here. Like this movie is horribly problematic and and I don't think it was then. I but it is now and like it needs some kind of Disney disclaimer on the front of it that just says, "Hey, we know this is a problem and it wasn't okay then and it's not okay now, but we're presenting it in its original format." This is a film, you know, I, I think in that way it, it might be worth looking at. I think it's certainly something worth studying and I appreciate that, that it was recommended to us for that reason. Jamal, thanks. Like this was a solid recommendation, man. I appreciate it. It's been a while since I got to turn over sub, uh, a movie like this uh, on the show. And that's, that's LA confidential. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I really, wanted really to like it. I wanted to feel so grand and like this noir thing. And it was, but it, it embraces all the worst parts of noir, like to make this thing. That's like this weird amalgamation of like visual delight and moral apathy. And like, that's LA confidential. So a strange film. I'm glad I watched it. Go follow at Mapstone park on Twitter. Andy, what are we watching next week? We are only watching one thing uh, next week, and that is, of course, Zack Snyder's Justice League. Blah, blah. Uh, I don't have any music right now. Like, <laughs> which man. comes out on Thursday on HBO Max, uh, the 18th. In its glorious four hours, uh, there's been some reviews trickling out. I've been trying to avoid them as best I can, uh, but that will be out. Because it's so long, that's the only movie we're going to do and talk about uh, next week. Yeah, I'm excited to watch it. I, I'm not excited about the four-hour cut. There we go, I got it bigger. I'm not excited about the four-hour cut. Um, I'm probably, I mean, hey, you're going to watch it in parts, right? Like watch two and then take I mean, a break. I mean, I'm going to have to probably watch yeah, at least I can't, in, you know, I, I hour can't and a half, kill, two hours. Yeah, I can't kill a, a, a half a day on one movie. Like I got I to gotta split that up yeah. somehow, so... I mean, I had to do that with the, with the Whedon cut or whatever they're calling that. You rewatched Justice League not that long ago, right? Yes, yeah, last week actually. Yeah, to get to get ready for it. Any hot takes before we jump in? Actually, next week I'll definitely ask you how the Whedon versus this one was. But before we get in, any hot takes on the Whedon cut for those who haven't watched yeah, it in a while? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's stunningly mediocre. It's just the, there's not a lot of chemistry between the characters. The characters haven't been well-established enough like in the Avengers films because uh, they all kind of don't have a, a lot of screen time. There is way too much CGI. It looks like a video game at a lot of times. It was like no wonder they were able to remake the movie because it's like 100% uh, digital, or, yeah. you know, effects-driven. And so it's um, it was okay. It, it's, it's, it's only two hours long, which is usually it's much, those big blockbusters are much longer than that. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it also just wasn't good. wasn't memorable, you know, and it, it feels like two different films. It feels like half the film is, uh, return of Superman. And then the other half is the, uh, whatever coming Steppenwolf, uh, apocalypse is. So there's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's okay. Yeah. I, I'm really interested to see how this one comes out. Uh, I, I watched the Joss Whedon one probably somewhere like four to six months ago. I, I watched it again one night. I was up and I was bored and I was like, I'll throw it on. And like it was so thunderingly average for a movie that's advertised to be so grand in scale. Like it's so dull. So we'll that see. Was the f yeah. That was the first movie we did on the show, by the way. Justice League? Yep. Oh my God. I guess you're right. <laughs> Oh God! So go back and listen. To, I'm gonna go back and listen to our episode review. one. Oh, dude, I don't know if I can. That's more cringe than the Joss Whedon cut. <laughs> um, maybe. May, all right. Well, then episode one of Off Script. You can go back and check out. Oh God. Oh, good luck. 
If you enjoyed the show today, if you liked what we were doing here, if you want to watch the episodes live with us on Facebook every Tuesday, you can follow us on Facebook to see what we're doing over there uh, and get a notification when we go live. You can check us out on Instagram or on Twitter. Our uh, live streams are uploaded to YouTube. And of course, our podcast episodes are uploaded in audio to iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and iHeartMedia and all the usual places your podcast goes. If you want to support the show, you can follow us on Facebook or any of those services. You can also subscribe. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes every single week delivered straight to you with movie news and movie reviews and and our, and our smiling faces and, and robust personalities. You can leave us a rating and review. Tell us what you thought of the show. And of course, you can hit us on Twitter or any of these services to uh, maybe recommend something we should watch, like Jamal with LA Confidential. You can check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, and you can email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. We will read correspondence live on the air when we have it. So hit us up. Let us know. Thanks for listening. And um, I guess that's my whole spiel. From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.